This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Uh, the first reading this morning is Psalm 46, uh, found on page 450. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of the city, it shall not be moved. God will help it when the morning dawns. The nations are in an uproar, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord. See what desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shield with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Hear the word of the Lord. Today's second reading is on page 865 of the Bible. The reading is from John's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 20 to 26. The woman that Jesus was speaking to said, Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Hear the word of the Lord. If you keep that passage open, or open it if you haven't already, so that's page 865. We've been looking uh, the last three weeks, something special is happening next week, then the week after we'll finish this series, at this wonderful story, one of my favourites in the Gospels, of Jesus' encounter with the woman from Samaria at the well. And so that's what we're looking at today, the third in that series. You can catch up with the other, the, f the first two on uh, online using our podcast. And uh, if, if you want to get the run up or uh, see what you've missed if you haven't been here, um, let's pray and ask for God's help as we inquire of Him. Our Lord and loving Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be with us in spirit and in truth this morning, that we would hear your word and also. 
let that word shape us in every way. And in Jesus' name we ask, amen. Religion, they say, causes wars, don't they? I mean, this is a claim that's felt to be so obvious these days that when uh, a scholar that I know of called William Kavanagh, theologian, was giving a lecture entitled, Does Religion Cause Wars?, someone scribbled on the poster advertising it the one poetic word, duh. Of course religion causes wars. And I guess it is hard to deny that some of humanity's worst tendencies have been amplified by religion. We are tribal animals, you and I. We cling to our groups. We prize them. And we are also creatures with a thirst for worship. We want to be in contact with something that transcends us, that's bigger than us. When we combine these two primal tendencies, to belong and to worship, things can become dangerous. Dangerous. Not only is it that I am proud of my identity as, uh, I say, a Calathumpian, but a god or gods have singled, signaled to me that we Calathumpians are special with special and privileged access to the transcendent truth. And that means that our enemies are not just enemies. They're infidels. And so the Twin Towers crumble before our eyes. Catholic and Protestant tensions simmer still to this day in Northern Ireland. Buddhists in Myanmar persecute Muslims and Hindu nationalists are reshaping India, even as we speak, to their agenda. Now, our response over here in the so-called enlightened secular West, of course, is to see that religion is a poison in the blood. And when you have a poison in the blood, you need to detox, don't you? You need to kind of get rid of it. We need to be detoxified from this terrible killer, religion. Of course, this fails to see the obvious fact of human history that human beings are capable of all the same atrocities without religion as they do in the name of religion. But never mind, we've made it so that religious questions are all about a matter of personal taste so that we can never make claims about it that affect anyone else. Religion for us is like Vegemite. Who likes Vegemite here? See, it div- who doesn't like Vegemite? Well, that's me. It's, Vegemite is divisive, right? It's, it's a matter of taste. You either like it or you hate it. It seemed much more popular than it deserved to me. And that's the end of the conversation. I mean, you, you can't come in here and force me to like Vegemite. You can force me to eat it, but what's the point of that? It just it seems like a ridiculous conversation to have. It's a matter of taste. Or perhaps a better analogy is, is that it's like the football team we like. We like the Roosters. They like the Raiders, poor things. But in the end, they're all just playing the same game. It's unimportant and undecidable, so why talk about it? But can questions of ultimate reality and meaning and purpose really be the same as the Vegemite question? To say that is intellectually feeble, for one thing, and completely gutless for another, even though it seems polite and peaceable. And at the same time, believing that religion is purely personal 
a matter of taste, has left a gaping hole in our cultural soul because the questions of ultimate meaning and purpose really matter for how we live and what we value and how we treat others. If we give a generation nothing to worship, they will worship anything to fill the void, which is what we see all around us. We see, in fact, a more divided, more tribal society than we have for generations. Now, this plunges us right back into the story of Jesus meeting the woman at the well from John chapter 4, where all these themes are combined. We've seen already that Jesus has offered the Samaritan woman living water, that she'll never have to come and get water again if she drinks of it. She'll never be thirsty ever again. And that this conversation has revealed that this feisty character, this Samaritan woman, has had a somewhat problematic life. She's passed, been passed on by five husbands and is now shacked up with the sixth bloke. It's the woman, though, that's pointed out that Jesus and she are tribally mismatched big time. They are racial and religious cousins, to be sure. But as you know very well, a family squabble can be more bitter than almost any other kind. This this disagreement between the Samaritans and the Jews was not a matter of disagreeing about how many gods there were or whether Jupiter or Yahweh was the true God, but it was a dispute about where and how to worship the true God. And so hot was the argument that Jews did not share things with Samaritans because they were contemptible and faithless. Now, just at that moment that Jesus has told the woman her own personal history, the woman raises that other elephant in the room, a room which admittedly is filled with elephants, Um, To be fair, in verse 19, she says, Sir, I see you are a prophet. You've just told me everything about myself without ever having met me before. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, the mountain of the Samaritans called Gerizim. But you say the place that people must worship is in Jerusalem. That's the Jewish claim. Behind the question is the thought, why are you a Jewish prophet deigning to speak to me, since you think I'm a worthless heretic, don't you? And you've even said something prophetic to me. Have you changed your mind about the temple? Well, now, the temple, you might remember, is the centre of Jewish faith, more than any cathedral is for Christians. It was the place where you came to encounter the God of Israel. You could pray to him anywhere. And you could hear the law read in the synagogue if you're in Alexandria, if you're in Persia, if you're in Spain, if you're in Rome in Jesus' time. But if you wanted atonement for your sins, if you wanted to do real business with God, you had to come to the mountain, Mount Zion in Jerusalem, to the temple building. And people did come from every corner of the earth, Jews and non-Jews. Was Jesus saying something different now about where to worship the true God? Well, yes, he certainly is. And he's got four points, four things to say to the woman. He says, first of all, there's a new era of worship about to come. Secondly, salvation is from the Jews. Thirdly, true worship is in spirit and in truth. And fourthly, that he, Jesus, is the Messiah. So new era of worship, salvation from the Jews, true worship is in spirit and in truth. And 
Jesus is the Messiah. Firstly, he says, there's a new era afoot of non-located, non-tribal worship. It's beginning. Look at verse 21. The hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. That's a radical thing to say. He's saying the age of the worship squabble is over. Something is about to happen which will end all of that tribalism. And notice how he says, you, Samaritan woman, are included in this new age of worship of the Father. Worship of the Father will not be a matter of ethnicity or gender or location. He isn't saying, no, no, you Samaritans have got to pack up and come down to Jerusalem now. He's saying, no, you will worship him, neither here nor there, but everywhere. Now, Jesus, though, isn't a relativist. He's not saying to her, hey, hey, whatever works for you. It's great that you Samaritans have found your own path to God. It's all the same God, roosters, raiders, Vegemite, whatever you like. Jews and Samaritans, all the same thing. Nothing could be farther from Jesus' mind. And that's the second point he makes. He says in verse 22, you, it's a bit rude what he says here. You do not worship what you know, or you worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So don't get me wrong, says Jesus. The Jews were right in the ancient argument, in the old dispute. The Samaritans were wrong and ignorant. They actually had no contact with the true God. The Jews do have a special place in God's plan. It was to them that God spoke. It was through their ancestor, Abraham, and his son, Isaac, and his son, Jacob, and through their descendants that God made contact with humanity. It was through them that God made promises. It was they that he had blessed, but they he had also disciplined. Salvation is from the Jews. But notice, he didn't say salvation is only for the Jews. The Jews were not and are not God's chosen people only for their own sakes or by dint of some ethnic superiority. That's exactly what their book had been saying all along. You were not anyone. That's why God chose you in the first place. And you were chosen so that God would bless all the peoples of the earth. That went right back to Genesis 12, to the promises made to Abraham. The people of Israel were to be the channel of God's blessing to the whole world and all its people. The streams of God's blessing would flow out from Mount Zion, from, from Israel, to the, but to the rest of the world. And ultimately from them would come the Messiah. Jesus is not offering here more tribalism, but neither is he preaching fluffy tolerance. Salvation is from the Jews, not from somewhere else. And so that means, thirdly, God isn't looking for tribal worship. God is seeking worship in spirit and in truth. See verse 23, God is seeking those who worship in spirit in and truth. God is spirit. So those who worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth. And quite clearly, that's a category that includes Samaritan women. Samaritan women that have had five marriages and now are living with one they're not married to. 
But what does worshipping God in spirit and truth mean? What does this new dislocated worship in spirit and in truth look like? Well, Jesus is not saying, worship God according to your own truth. Look inside and you will find him. That's what we'd like him to say. But he's not saying that. He's saying what is truly spiritual corresponds to the truth of God himself. True worship is not just about subjective experience, but about what the true God says about himself. And what is that? Well, Jesus helps us here because later on in John's Gospel, he will say of himself, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I am the place now where you can encounter God, says Jesus. To worship the Father in truth is to worship him through his Son, who truly and uniquely makes him known. And that leads us to the fourth point that Jesus wants to make, which is really kicked off by the woman who's a great theologian. Because she says, you know, hang on, we're waiting for the Messiah, and the Messiah, when he comes, will sort this all out. Because what you've said, you can the under the under the, the impression you get is that she's what she's saying is, look, to sort this all out, wait and see when the Messiah comes, because he will clear it up for us. But Jesus says, Well, funny you should raise the Messiah issue because I am he. Now we forget sometimes in our romantic haze about what a nice guy Jesus is in our cultural memory that he makes some pretty strong and possibly abrasive claims about himself. This is among the strongest. You've heard of the Messiah complex? If Jesus is not the Messiah, then he certainly has the Messiah complex. Literally, because he claims here that he is the chosen one from Israel's history. The one who has emerged from all those thousands of years of interactions with God, from all those ups and downs, from those promises that God has made. Salvation has come from the Jews because salvation has come from this Jew. And this new era of worship will involve coming to him, not to the temple in Jerusalem, which was a, a temporary measure, a, a shadow of what Jesus was in three dimensions. And here's the amazing thing, though, about this story. Israel's Messiah, the one they'd been waiting for all those years, has been revealed to a Samaritan, a woman at that, and a troubled and rejected one too. The woman of five and a half husbands meets with God in spirit and in truth. And she is the one who is shown the new way to worship, which is not the possession of any tribe. If even a Samaritan can be included, then anyone can. The water of the old worship has been changed into the extraordinary overflow of wine that is the new form of worship. Or to use another one of Jesus' pictures, Living water to eternal life now flows from him. You used to have to go back to the temple again and again to have your sins forgiven. You had to return, like the woman had to return to the well day after day. 
But to come to Jesus is to have your sins decisively and eternally forgiven. To meet God decisively and once for all. And that is now available not to an exclusive members only offer, but to all who would come to him. This is the message we need for our divided and troubled times, our times of increased tribalism. The genius of the gospel of Jesus is that it belongs to no tribe and it is for every tribe. It is not a white man's faith. It transcends our deepest enmities and brings together human beings to worship the one who made us all and in Jesus showed his so great love for all the world. Salvation belongs. Salvation is from the Jews, but it does not belong to them or to the English or to the Americans or to anyone else. Worship of Jesus would bring together even Samaritans and Jews but also Greeks and Romans and barbarians, slaves and their masters, men and women, people from across the, that extraordinary empire and people today from across the world. The tragedy of history, though, is that Christianity has so often become a weapon of tribal struggle. We can't help ourselves as humans, can we? It becomes a pretext for acts of violence and domination. It's been seen as a weapon of empire. But true faith in the Father can never be tribal. It does not create an empire or a caliphate. It must always be in spirit and in truth, in Jesus, in other words. There's been extraordinary lessons to learn from the missionary movement in the 19th century, which so often went along with the extension of the British Empire, and sometimes it was hard to distinguish from it. I traveled, had the good, good fortune to travel to Vanuatu and to talk to Christians there quite recently, the interesting kind of complexity they have to deal with is that that the missionaries came with the British and the French, those who've left trouble behind them and made political things difficult for them, so people that they have very ambivalent feelings about. And yet, the gospel of Jesus Christ is clearly bigger than the imperial forces that brought it. For there are many, many Christians on those islands. Those islands are far more Christian than the secular West now is. We have the same dynamic played out uh, with our uh, indigenous brothers and sisters here too, who are far more Christian than we in the non-indigenous community are. The gospel came. It came sometimes in strange circumstances, sometimes as a weapon of empire, and yet it was bigger than that because it cannot be contained or attached to any tribe. Which means for us today, grappling with the uncomfortable reality that Jesus is not just one truth, not just Vegemite, but the absolute truth, the universal truth. Others in the world need to hear him and believe. We cannot hide behind our polite relativism. We cannot say that Jesus is only for us, and people like us. He's for Muslims, and he's for Buddhists, and he's for Jews, and he's also for the secular Aussies that live around us in their thousands. He's for the spiritual and not religious. He's for those who 
don't know what box to tick on the census anymore. He's for all generations. He's for all communities. He's for all income brackets. And he's for both sexes. And that's why you and I keep inviting people in the eastern suburbs to meet Jesus. That's why we're passionate about doing that. It's not because we want people to join our tribe or belong to a different racial or ethnic group, but because we know that true worship, the thing that human beings are looking for more than anything, the longings, the deepest longings of our hearts, is found in one place, or rather one person, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.